0: Episode 10 of The Written Word, co-hosted by Meredith May and Sean Tupa. This podcast investigates the integral role that writing plays in our society and examines the unique ways that The Written Word helps us to gain a greater understanding of the world around us. We've talked in previous episodes about how to write and give feedback, but today we're entering uncharted territory. How do we prepare to write?
1: We have access to a lot of information. Online encyclopedias, books that can be delivered to your hands within moments. Over 7,000 tweets are sent per second. It's a lot to keep up on. Writers are tasked with evaluating and processing information before any writing can actually begin.
0: It is pivotal for writers to know that every word they put on a page will stand up to scrutiny. They need to immerse themselves in all this knowledge and somehow find ways to not drown. In academia, the skill set is called information literacy, and it's what we'll be talking about today.
1: Lynn Lampert, she is an academic librarian with a specialization in information literacy instruction. We'll rely on Lynn's expertise today to discuss the information literacy skills that are necessary to be a successful, authentic writer in today's world. Thanks for being here, Lynn.
0: Thanks for inviting me. It's great to have you on the podcast, Lynn. So my first question here isn't really a question at all, actually. It's it's more of just to learn a little bit more about you, learn a little bit more about your background and how you arrived at information literacy as your area of expertise. Okay, well, I basically approached uh, becoming
2: an academic librarian after attending the University of California, Santa Barbara, where I was really fortunate to have a great educational experience. Jumping even earlier than that, my K-12 through 12 experience, I was always the kid who liked actually writing book reports, going to the library, learning about stuff and writing. I liked the research process. I wasn't the child who was complaining about it. And I did spend a lot of my formative years in libraries And I think part of what interested me in going to library school post undergraduate was that I was the one friend who always helped everybody with their paper in college. From the point of people panicking that they couldn't find a source at the last minute. And remember, I mean, I'm I'll be really very clear about how old I am. So I went to school before, you know, the World Wide Web could actually see it. I was a kid in the days of gopher and Unix and <laughs> a black screen where, you know, you would wait and you would hear a 2400 baud modem make horrible screeching noises mm-hmm. that could wake your dorm neighbor. I, I remember those days. Those days were good, right? Yep. Uh, so CD-ROMs for databases were new and dot matrix printers were flowing down the stairs at the Davidson Library and getting information was just starting to move away from books only in or printed journals or indexes with print and type. That people didn't want to like have to look that tiny to find. So I was the neighbor in the dorm who would help everybody when they had procrastinated, because I rarely did, and help people go gather some books or figure out, like, we would go together, what's your topic about? And I realized I had a real skill for it because I really liked it. Um, I liked playing with other people's topics, helping them figure out what to write about, looking at the assignment. And I guess I was kind of born to be a librarian. And so when I, Finished my undergraduate career at UC Santa Barbara. I was a history major, and I wanted to get my master's degree in history. But I noticed there were a few institutions that had dual programs where you could get an MA in history and an MA. M-L-I-S, excuse me, in library and information science. So I was like, well, that'd be cool. I could do two things at once, little thinking about how much work that would be. And I ended up going to UCLA. And that was where I cut my teeth in actually while I was getting both a master's degree in history and a master's in library and information science. I also worked the reference desk at the big research library at UCLA. And there I didn't really help your typical undergrad. I worked with advanced researchers, intimidating professors, academics, data data wonks, mm-hmm. and helped them find everything you could imagine. And then when I moved over to work with undergrads later in my career, I realized what a giant gap there was between how some people struggled with information in terms of obtaining it and understanding how to attack a topic and how do you really become a proficient researcher. And As information literacy was emerging in the late 1990s, I realized this was an area I wanted to work in in academic librarianship. I wanted to help college students survive writing the paper. When I started my academic library career it was right when information literacy was really taking off and 1998 was when I got both my master's degrees and I first started working at California Lutheran University which is in Southern California and then 4 years later I came to where I now am, California State University Northridge. I've been here 16 years. Very different campus than California Lutheran. There we were about 2,200, 2,400. Here we sometimes teeter near 40,000. Wow. I'm the coordinator of information literacy instruction along with about 25 other colleagues. We teach heavily here on this campus as academic librarians. Mm -hmm. So we do anything from about 700 or more information literacy sessions a year. And that's kind of how I fell into this. So I get to teach a lot, and that's why I came to work at Northridge, because I really love working with students and helping them realize how to attack an assignment.
1: So Lynn, in, in your opinion, what are the essential information literacy skills that students must develop, in, in, especially in their freshman year of college?
0: Hopefully
2: they've had an exposure or practice writing a research paper that they won't be asked to do it the first time they're in college. But if they haven't, that they'll at least be asked to write a research paper freshman year. And there's some semblance even within my own academic community of, oh, no, you know, that may be too overwhelming. And I'm like, oh, please don't pull the bandaid off, assign it. Mm-hmm. Because I think when you have practice writing a research paper, you get better at it. The more you do it, the better it is. I tell my students all the time, research has R-E in front of the word search, because you're supposed to do it more than once. You research and you never stop requesting to find what you need to learn, read, and then give yourself more time to write and think about it. So they need that exposure and practice in writing, the ability to read and dissect a writing prompt. You would be astonished how many people haven't had variety of prompts given to them. You know how your teacher would give you or your professor, you know, that one little paragraph and write about this, or here's a controversial topic and write about this and compare Asked, those kind of writing prompts that people struggle with understanding the prompt. So they really need to be able to read and dissect a writing prompt. They need to be asked to think about what they need to be thinking about before they write, because there's preparation that you need to do before you write. They need to be able to read critically. So if they're going to be allowed to write beyond first person and their own experiences, like self-reflection essays, which happen a lot freshman year. People you know write about their life experience in composition courses. But if they're going to be asked to read critical texts or dense academic tests, then they need to be asked questions that help prompt them to think about, well, why am I reading this? And what is this authority of this text? And then think about, well, how would they judge the text? And then they need, obviously, in terms of library mechanic kind of stuff, practice formulating searches beyond Google. Mm-hmm. And and not that there's anything wrong with Google. I, I embrace and love Google. But they need to realize that not everything will be freely available to them in terms of the peer-reviewed academic resources they're often required to consult. Those would be paid out on the open Internet. If you did a Google search and you found a great paper, some publisher may say you have to you know, pay for it, whereas any institution they go to, they can get that through the library. So they do need practice formulating search strategies. And I would say also, they need to, getting into kind of the idea of why they need to cite sources, they need to really understand that it isn't just because, it's because they need to cite sources so that A, they don't get into problems with plagiarism, B, They can actually get into a dialogue that would work within a discipline or major they're working in so that others, the audience, whoever they're writing a paper for within academia or maybe later the workplace could go read more about something. And then they need exposure, again, to different sources and formats of information beyond a textbook. So you even see within higher ed right now, people talk about reading lists getting shorter and Not so much of a need to assign so many things to read. We want to make sure they're reading critically, but I I think they do need exposure to different formats of information. Particularly, I'll add, students seem to grapple and struggle with how to even read statistics and data and how to know how to find it. That's an art form that's kind of dying with the digital age because Mm -hmm. told factually, what to expect. And now with artificial intelligence, we could maybe just, you know, ask a bot, like maybe we could ask Alexa or Siri to kind of find us something rather than thinking about maybe data is biased. Those are some things, I mean, they, they may be all over the map, but I really think students need to kind of realize that before you write, you need to pause. Before you search, you need to pause. What do you need to do in both instances? You need to think. And while you read, you really better be thinking critically about why the author is saying what they're saying and what are their credentials.
1: How has the web really changed the skills that we we need to acquire in information literacy?
2: I think that's a great question. I think I think I would associate it kind of with, if I were to draw an analogy, it's kind of like you learn how to swim right before the internet came out. <clears throat> you're in a swimming pool, there's no current. There should be ideally nothing in the swimming pool, maybe just a flotation like raft, right? Nothing to get in your way. But if you've ever tried swimming in the ocean and, you know, there's a lot of undercurrent and there's Mm -hmm. a lot of seaweed and there's things dangling and maybe you're in SoCal and there's like a recent shark alert. (laughs) Um, That's kind of like the Internet when it went graphical and um, the World Wide Web browsers became beyond gopher and suddenly now it's information glut in the sense of like you're swimming in an ocean that is really, the art now isn't making it across to safety. It's trying to figure out what you're gonna need to do to survive and figure out what you need to obtain. There's information glut. There's so much more information than when I was an undergrad. I mean, when I was an undergrad, we had certain amount of print indices and libraries had a finite number of resources you could go after. Mm -hmm. And if you wanted, for instance, to do primary source research in history, you'd have to write a grant proposal to go to Washington, D.C. You couldn't go on your computer and get into the National Archives and see a document from your dorm room. So now you really have more with this great propensity of information, you have to make more critical choices because it's disintermediated, meaning you don't go to necessarily a professional to help give you a gateway or a key to see something, or you don't have to travel in a car to go necessarily go look at something unless it hasn't been digitized. So I think the real struggle is really, for many, figuring out which sources they're going to use. And also, within a search retrieval tool, even... Google, why is a search response evoking this result first? And why is this result Mm -hmm. first? And I mean, we all know Wikipedia is always at the top, pretty much often. And that is really a challenge in the sense of you do exactly as you just mentioned. You need to think about the authority and why something is there. And then you need to decide what you are going to select and why and think critically about that source.
1: And what of these information literacy skills you mentioned? You wish students had before they got to college. What do you think is essential for students to know in high school?
2: I think they need an exposure to going beyond pro and con in a debate, but to realizing and and identifying bias not that bias is a negative word okay right right. what platform is the author or the publication coming from Mm -hmm. and what what is is there every every fact is a certain biased in it? it it doesn't it doesn't necessarily not have opinion in it so can they think critically about information can they think critically about what they're reading or hearing or seeing and then decide well wait a minute I want to step back and can I find something else that corroborates or says no, the flip side of that? And can I embrace that? I mean, we tend to be a culture right now of a lot of people want to hear the same opinion Mm -hmm. because it makes us, um, even in our political environment, feel embraced online. And there's a lot of that with social media of like people tend to gravitate towards like minded people. And I think that even translates into the resources that we select. As undergrads, potentially, if they don't really have exposure to knowing what sources might be out there. And we can look at data from Pointner and other large surveys that are out there. We know that undergraduates largely aren't reading print communication of newspapers. They aren't necessarily watching or listening to the news. They aren't, what are their forms of communication? Is it a tweet? Is it social media? Is it? a hoax? Is it real? So there's a lot of things that are different for this generation. And so we have to sift through these layers, if you will. It's kind of like looking at the underneath of the ocean, the bottom floor, and what are the layers of information that they might need to examine? I mean, Mm -hmm. hopefully they haven't drowned that far that they're down there, but um, (laughs) if they are down there, that hopefully somebody threw them something, you know, breathing device, so that then they could see, well, gee, for this assignment, I'm being asked to look at secondary sources and maybe newspapers. What I would say is you really do need, before writing, to consider all of the sources that might inform them about their topic, and then they also need a certain amount of self-reflection and humility to realize, like, while you think, yeah, oh, I got this, I can start writing, you may want to at least Listen to those who've written about your topic before, the scholars or the blogger. Okay, that's fine. And see whether or not you really do have a handle on your topic. And then look at the assignment requirements, right? So I
0: think that's also a key. I, I always am interested and intrigued as to how certain writing styles and certain topics related to writing, how academic integrity impacts that. So, my question is how can institutions' academic integrity culture affect a student's ability to obtain information literacy skills?
2: Oh, that's so huge. And it does. Okay. <laughs> it so does. I, I think, again, even just using the word academic integrity culture. You can't even assume that a college campus has a culture of academic integrity in the sense of, is it more of a culture of preventing academic dishonesty, or Mm -hmm. is it a culture of promoting academic integrity, and what do I mean by that? Are syllabi across the campus really pointing out the consequences of what will happen if you plagiarize or cheat or do anything against a code of information ethics on campus. If that isn't there, I think that you're kind of setting students up to possibly run into problems. I mean, we all know that students, there are some who will always intentionally try to game the system. There are intentional Cheaters, intentional plagiarizers, but the larger proportion are unintentional plagiarizers, people who never really learned how to cite properly. They've never been asked to go use anything called APA, the American Psychological Association citation style. Chicago is a city to them, not a style is some gal named Kate, um, what's MLA? <laughs> they don't know. And you, you ask a room of forty undergrads in an information literacy instruction session, what citation are you asked to use? And half of them may not have even read that part of the syllabus to know that the assignment requires them to use Chicago or it requires them to use APA. Mm-hmm. And then if they've never used it before, it becomes like this cloak of great stress for them because. They're so obsessed, not obsessed, but they're so worried about whether or not they'll be able to figure out how to cite all their sources. They start amassing their sources and trying to figure out how they'll cite them rather than really focusing on what they should, which is the writing of the paper. Right. Uh, so I think students do need, especially I'll say like in high school level, different exposure to how to cite sources, at least MLA, I mean, the modern language. Association is basic enough for just some kind of composition writing, some kind of paper that isn't self-reflective where they cite something. Maybe they're reading, you know, one of those great high school novels of classics and they have to cite something. Because if you wait all the way to college to ever cite anything, you're really behind the eight ball. So you need to really talk about the fact that students need to prepare themselves to read a text and then figure out if they want to pull some thoughts external to their own into their paper and attribute and integrate external writing into their own writing, they need to think about how to appropriate that. What's their idea and what's not their idea. And they should be proud of enough of their own ideas in writing that they want to really discern between the two. Right. They have their own idea and they have a thesis and then how does this corroborate or how does this, you know, not. So without a culture that discusses why we appropriate and attribute information, or why do we block quote? (laughs) Why do we use footnotes in certain disciplines? Mm -hmm. Faculty, you know, most of the people I work with are very good about outlining why we do what we do, for instance, in history, why do we use Chicago? Why do we still care about footnotes? Uh, Because that is a signpost in our discipline for further research, so that somebody will read our paper someday and say, wow, I'd like to do more research on that. I'll go take a look at the source. So I think that is getting people into a culture of academic integrity of understanding from a disciplinary perspective. How do, for instance, scientists um, let people know about the work going on in their lab or in their paper and how it was built upon other studies and why that may or may not matter? Every discipline has a certain code of the dissemination of information. If your campus doesn't have a culture that proactively educates, and rather is looking just to catch those who are cheating, you don't have a culture of academic integrity.
1: Hmm. Lynn, what have you found to be the best, I don't want to say argument, but I I, I guess that's what it is. I guess the best way to convince students of the importance of citation. Hmm.
2: Well, I mean, there's always, you know, the scare tactic, but for me, yeah. it doesn't really, it doesn't really work that well because um, to really communicate to somebody why they should be citing, um, I think you need to do something that is really important. I'm actually working with some faculty on campus right now. It's the idea of of giving students an example. Um, it's right. called transparent assignments. So. There's a certain thing that happens in a lot of classes that I work in where sometimes people will say, we're going to be doing this research paper. They're here in the library today with Lynn, and next week I'll, I'll give you the topics and I'll tell you about the assignment. Oh, that's not good. Um, because it really would be better if they had already known their assignment and even ideally seen what good assignments look like. hmm Having an example of what a really good annotated bibliography or a really good literature review or a really good research paper looks like would help students to understand how the citations made the writing stronger. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be some kind of an elusive golden ring that, uh, you know, I didn't have anybody explain it to me this way, so they'll just struggle through and eventually they'll put together a really good paper. Good drafting and writing principles of writing as a process. Across the curriculum, from all perspectives, we give people examples of how a good citation and a good use of quotations, and I'm talking in-text citation, which we could even get into if we wanted to, students struggle the most with in-text citation, Hmm. not the bibliography at the end of the paper, in-text, because they are really having trouble using a point where they are departing from their own voice and using somebody else's and then transitioning back into their own words. Or vice versa, they can't, the bad, bad writing at the collegiate level, you can see that there's a real struggle with clearly writing and giving a signpost to the reader in the next sentence. Well, and in this article, Dr. X says, and then, you know, quotation, direct phrase, and quotation, and then I have decided blah, 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 that Dr. X, and then it's your own idea. So I think that students struggle with that. And so when you really talk about how is citation need to be explained to students, we need to get away from examples that only look at the bibliography at the end of the paper. And we need to focus more on in-text citation for the improvement of writing. I see students struggle so much with that. Because they don't want a large percentage of their paper they've been told to be other people's words, but then how much is too much, and then they have to cite six sources, and it's eight pages long, and so how do they know how much should be theirs, how much should be something else, what proportions, and we don't really talk about that in a library session, but I have had some faculty where we now are spending more time in my sessions talking about the assignment in terms of, what should you be thinking about when you introduce an external source inside your paper? How do you address it?
0: So let's just say I'm a student and I'm facing a list of potential paper topics. How would Mm -hmm. I go about tackling that list of paper topics?
2: Well, I I luckily have a lot of experience in this. (laughs) So I I am at CSUN. I'm also the history librarian and uh, there are about six classes where students will every year, every semester, be given a list of topics. And they're kind of those classic what history students call identification terms. So, for instance, um, if you're teaching um, or you're enrolled in a course for 20th century history, and some of your topics for American history might be prohibition, Ku Klux Klan, Sacco and Vanzetti case, and I can rattle off a bunch of topics. And students, they just go, well, I'll just pick one. I'll just pick one of these. I'm supposed to write on one of these topics. Mm-hmm. I always say, uh, stop, please stop, and think first of the fact that, A, you're going to have to really spend a lot of your future time in the next month writing about this topic, do you know anything about it before you select the topic? Mm -hmm. At least Google it, for God's sakes, um, because you're going to be bored to tears if you pick something that you can't stand. (laughs) So each one of these terms, which the historian who's teaching your class obviously finds fascinating, if you're not a history major and you're just taking general education, get familiar with what those topics are. Then learn how those topics may be related to the themes of your course, meaning, Most faculty are not gonna put a list of topics out there that they don't relate in some way to the reading or the lectures. Mm -hmm. So in other words, will you be able to use things that you're learning in class or you already have learned in class to help you with this topic? If the topics are totally extant, of what you're learning in class, then you need to kind of what I like to call explode the topic, meaning what things could be associated with prohibition. And so let's say we're talking about the topic of prohibition. Oh, the dry laws, um, the Sunday dry laws, the temperance movement, speakeasies, bootlegging. And I can think of all kinds of words that go along. It's kind of like, like those party games where you're not allowed to use a word. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, that's the stop word. And you have to think about all the other words. And so why do I do this? Because that's helping them develop ways to search to think of search terms they could use in anything, whether it's an open search engine, or a proprietary specialized database. And then they need to think of the topic they pick, whatever it is, and, and say, what's the who, what, where, when, why, how of that topic, meaning, why is this topic even here? Why do people still care about it? Or if it's a current topic and it's not a history topic, you know, why is this topic even here? And then who are the authorities is the next thing they'll have to jump into of where can I learn more? Has anybody else written about this topic? And they also have to know whether or not they'll be looking for primary or secondary sources related to the topic. And they'll also have to think about in terms of the topic, if they aren't able to find information how and when and how long should they struggle with their topic before they seek professional guidance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I tell this to students like right after you leave my class, please don't email me and say that you need six sources on your topic. I know that we just spent time together. <laughs> you now need to spend at least, you know, 40 minutes through the different ways that we practice searching to give it a go yourself and then tell me what you're facing. Because I think there's a propensity of of not wanting to struggle with it. And again, that's what research is. You search over and over again to see what may come up in a different search facility, right? I usually use the relationship of what store am I shopping in today for my information? And how does that relate to my topic and my assignment? So those are some things that I like to have them do before they go through a list of potential topics. And And then also, I guess the last thing I'd add is what is the writing assignment? Um, I would be remiss not to say that. Are you writing a two-page paper, a five-page paper? What do you think you're going to need? How many information sources do you think you need? If the professor's requiring five, I tell them, grab 10. And they look at me like, why? And I'm like, some of them might be really bad. And if you procrastinate and you wait till like the night before or the day, you know, before it's due, and then you realize that sounded like a really good, article, but it was just a really sexy title and it's not really related, they need to read the abstract. Mm -hmm. You know, they need to kind of, before they say, I'm going to use one of these, you know, they need to read a little bit of a teaser of the article to make sure that it really is on track related to their topic.
1: And on the educator side, what tips or techniques do you have or Various things that you would recommend to educators to to help set the students up for success on on writing a paper?
2: I think one of the things that is really helpful is trying to keep it set up for success. So in other words, if you're picking topics, do your homework ahead of time, whether you're a new faculty member or... A senior faculty member, making sure that there's going to be information available in the formats that you're requesting. If you're trying to make it trickier, you know, then your students are going to spend less time reading and writing and more time searching to find. And and while I want everybody to practice searching to to retrieve, I, I want them to spend more time writing and 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 reading about their topic and then thinking critically about it. I think that we need to get away from the idea of scavenger hunt research where you set up students for topics, you know, so let's say you pick things that you think are more remote. So there's uh, not paper mills out on the open internet, you know, there's some faculty or they want to pick more obscure topics because they're worried about those paid paper mills out there where students can buy a topic. Well, if they can't find published information on the topic, or it's so recent that things aren't really happening yet, then it's going to be a little bit harder for the student to succeed in getting the required number of resources, and they're going to spend more time obsessing about that and less writing. So setting them up for success and then, again, as I mentioned, talking to students about why those topics are being presented. So another thing faculty need to remember is assume nothing. Assume that they do not have exposure to knowing how to find a Supreme Court case. Assume nothing and make sure that you are very deliberate in your assignment, that they know what a literature review is, for instance, or that they know what type of end product they're supposed to be creating for you. So really set them up for success, make sure their material's available either online, in physically in a library, or that you've put items on reserve so that students don't need to buy additional texts, you know, outside of the library, make set them up for success. Because if they know that every paper topic or every case study or every group presentation, project, topic, idea, is doable, then they can spend time either working individually or collaborating to give you the best end product.
1: Excellent.
0: Guys, I'm, I'm going to go into the future for a second. Is that okay with you? Let's, let's do that. Can I do that?
1: Yeah, you can do that.
0: Okay. All right. So I'm in the future and we're talking about information literacy today, let's say 20, 30 years out. What, what, are we, what are we even talking about at this point? What does the future hold as are it Are we pertains... bringing out our
1: crystal ball here? Yes. Crystal yes.
0: ball is out, and we are now in the future, and we're talking about information literacy. So, Lynn, what, what do you think the future holds for information literacy?
2: I think in terms of information literacy, I think we'll continue to see an exponential growth in, in information. I think actually once I was talking earlier about artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think we're going to see sources and things that, that really change, you know, in terms of even if you just look at the explosion of Twitter and tweets and what that would mean for a researcher, let's say a political scientist or a historian trying to figure out how and where all tweets will be archived. We are dealing with different formats of information and we are so with our mobile devices able to search and gather information at a moment's notice, and we seem to be obsessed with it. So I think that what we will see with information literacy is a kind of need to know how to think critically. So I I like to equate information literacy in the sense of what will critical thinking needs look like in 20 to 30 years from now. Mm-hmm. I think going all the way back to, you know, the ancient Greeks, critical thinking, some things never change. You yeah. do need to take the time to discern what the question is and why the question is being posed. And is there a reason behind the question? And if you are searching for meaning or searching for the answer to a query, whether it be a real life problem or a hypothetical theoretical problem, you're going to want to consult sources that are authoritative. So. If we are, for instance, going into the future Blade Runner style and we need to solve a problem, (laughs) we're still going to want the best resource out there quickly at a moment's notice. And so I think we will see the one thing that will change possibly is publication rates speeding up, Mm -hmm. possibly the peer review process and scholarly publishing process changing. The way that we interact and collaborate as researchers will become perhaps less bureaucratic, one could hope, into a more collaborative, organic structure that information may be accepted in different streams than it is now, I could hope. One could only hope. I would actually hope it would be <laughs> less expensive, too, but that's just that's just the, the weirdo in me wanting to see everything not be so expensive when people want to gather information and information could be free. That's a pipe dream. So I think we will see a lot more contention in terms of how information is acquired and produced and then distributed? And will it become the information haves and haves-nots again in the sense of will information literacy needs need to be thought of in terms of people's class and status? Will will we need to worry about people's education levels even more if people aren't getting the same access to information, meaning medical research, will it be funded? And if it's not funded, who will have access to it if it's not publicly available. So I think we need to think about it in terms of many different layers. And so I think there will always be a need for authority. We will need to have an ability to think about information. But also we need to really be thinking of, well, how how do we engage with information that's scholarship and what is the conversation? Research as inquiry, it's part of learning. So information literacy is critical thinking and learning about whatever you're searching for, whatever your information need is and So we probably will see a lot more things that are digital, but hopefully the face-to-face element won't be completely gone of going to faculty member. Hopefully we won't just be online education so that we lose the human side of interaction because that would be, I think, very sad to lose seminar-style learning Mm -hmm. and the ability to kind of talk to one another and more importantly listen to one another to kind of find out, well, What are the research questions that we really need to solve when we face a crisis? How do we come together as a community of researchers and scholars to come up with a good decision to help ourselves, our communities, our fellow beings?
1: Thank you so much for taking your time out, and and we greatly appreciate your thoughts.
2: Well, thanks for inviting me. I really like the discussion, and I'm really grateful that you are looking at the topic of information literacy in relation to writing and learning. I think that that is really important. The Written Word is sponsored by Turnitin.com. It's hosted by Meredith May and Sean Tupa. This episode was written by Peter Kerr and Amanda Zelig's Hand.
0: Produced by Sam Swink. Creative direction by Sebastian Caceres, music by Gianni Izzo.
1: Many thanks to our special guest, Lynn Lambert.